Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company on ADH.TV at the beginning of a new week. You can find the show easily, just tell your family and friends to go to the website, ADH.TV, click the Watch Now button in the top right-hand corner. It's free to watch. Well, what a weekend. Anthony Albanese was sworn in today as Australia's 31st Prime Minister before heading to Tokyo with his Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. Anyone who is a Liberal supporter and who didn't see Saturday's result coming for the Liberals is, I'm sorry to say, not au fait with politics. Stevie Wonder could have seen what was coming. In a way, the clean-out was needed. Finally, we can say goodbye to the likes of Trent Zimmerman, the bloke who obtained the plush seat of North Sydney without ever facing a pre-selection. He was never cut out to be a Member of Parliament, a total party hack whose contribution to the country was virtually nil. For too long, people like this fellow have held the creme de la creme of blue-ribbon Liberal seats. Let this be the start of the rebuild of the Liberal Party. The first who should be made to go in order to refresh is the Liberal Party executive. Any executive member who sat back and allowed members' rights to be squashed and allowed a parliamentary leader, Morrison, and his sidekick, Hawke, to stymie pre-selections, those people don't deserve to be at the top making decisions. The parliamentary leader does not own the party. There is no party without members. But also, the year is 2022, not 1996. Elections are now fought in the digital space and fought on different issues. Applying the tactics you used to defeat Paul Keating in 1996 won't work today. And whoever chose Simon Birmingham and Anne Ruston to be the campaign spokespeople for the Liberals is kidding. Two more dull and uninteresting people you could never, ever wish to meet. I'll tell you what, it must be a prerequisite for anyone who wants to be a South Australian MP, they're both South Australians, it must be a prerequisite for anyone who wants to be a South Australian MP that you set out to achieve not much. I know that was the case with Christopher Pine in Parliament 26 years, not one key policy achievement. Birmingham and Ruston are in the same boat. One word sums up both of them, blamange. Let this be the start of the rebuild of the Liberal Party. Centre-right voters have been abandoned for too long in this country, but they have a media home here at ADH.TV. Well, congratulations to Anthony Albanese for his success on Saturday. He's done it against the odds. He faced relentless criticism, but he kept his nerve. Nothing that the Coalition did from the start of the campaign to the end of it altered the political needle. In other words, the campaign for the Coalition was basically a waste of time. There are some golden rules in politics, one of which is... You can't sell a Mercedes by rubbishing a Holden. Too much of the coalition time was spent attacking Albanese. And at the end of the day, voters were wondering what the coalition was offering for the future that was worth voting for. If we forget the politics and so often animosity bordering on hatred is directed at people with whom you don't politically agree, the Albanese story is quite extraordinary. And he became emotional on Saturday night in what was an excellent and subdued acceptance of the fact that he had become Australia's 31st Prime Minister. His mother in 1963 had decided to keep a child that she had out of wedlock. At the time, she would have faced significant pressures 
being a young Catholic woman. She decided to take for her newborn son the name of his father. Anthony Albanese was raised believing that his father had died. He subsequently found out otherwise. The son is now Prime Minister. Congratulations are also due to the extraordinary talented, but not necessarily politically astute, female candidates who cut a swathe through the Liberal heartland. They are, by and large, two trick ponies, climate change and an integrity commission. I still don't know, by the way, what about the climate they want to change and why, but I will get some of them on the program to find out. Nonetheless, they are very successful women and they've prevailed in a difficult campaign. So where do we stand today? First, it must be said in the history of Australian politics, I have not identified a single party to have won a federal election with fewer than 33% of the primary vote. It must raise significant questions about this absurd preferential voting system. I'll look at that in a moment. Nonetheless, as figures stand, the Labor Party have won 72 seats, the Coalition 52, and so far crossbenchers are staggering 15. That will increase because the Greens seem certain to win Brisbane from the Coalition, putting four Greens in the lower house. Brisbane and Ryan from the Coalition, Griffith from Labor, and of course Adam Bant in Melbourne. The two-party political system which has ruled this country for a long time is under siege. And quite frankly, the major parties only have themselves to blame. There's one continuing phenomenon about federal politics. There are a veritable army of journalists living in the capital, living in the back pocket of MPs and leaders who are paid to know the scene. Almost without exception, at the last election, they got the result wrong. And almost without exception, though there were a couple who were on the ball, but by Saturday, they were still talking about Morrison miracles. My job as a commentator is to try to tell you what the reality is, not what we would like it to be. On Thursday night, in summing up, right at the end of my program, I began my closing comment by saying, quote, we are now left with an ideologically lost Liberal Party, not knowing which way to turn. And then I said this. And on Saturday, Australians will have their say. Tragically, I don't believe it'll be good news. Scott Morrison can't win 76 seats needed to form government. Labor currently have 68. I don't see any instance where the Coalition can win a single seat from Labor. Can Labor win eight seats to get to 76? My reckoning is they can, but the voters will decide that. Two points there. I told you on Thursday, not for the first time, that Morrison couldn't win. And I have for some time documented why that is the case. Indeed, I spoke to at least four senior cabinet ministers over the last six months because I could see the runaway train coming down the track. And as far back as when I was in hospital early this year, and not for the first time, I suggested there must be leadership change in the coalition. Not for the first time, I was told there was no mood for change. I then made the simple point, and I quote what I said to three cabinet ministers, so you're all going to go over the cliff together, unquote. And that's happened, including the Treasurer and the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and a putative Prime Minister, Josh Frydenberg. Admittedly, the vote on Saturday got rid of what I would call political rubbish within the Liberal Party. People like Trent Zimmerman, Lucy Wicks, Celia Hammond in Western Australia, Julian Simmons in Queensland are absolutely no loss. And James Stevens in South Australia might hang on, but he should go with them. These people are in favour of taking the Liberal Party further to the left, what I call the Keen Doctrine. Yet this mob and this Liberal lurch was wiped out at the state election in WA, wiped out at the state election in South Australia, and now wiped out in Canberra. 
The political reality is simple. There is a genuine, modern, aware and compassionate large conservative family out there who, under Morrison, couldn't find a home. The new leadership under Peter Dutton is going to have to accommodate them and face the fire of the media and the political left. But the Liberal Party can't rebuild with more of the same. The most disturbing headline I saw at the weekend said simply, quote, the class of 2022 will be the voters of 2025, unquote. And isn't that true? So if the left-wing indoctrination continues in the classroom and at universities, how will they then vote in 2025? The Conservative forces of very significant numbers in this country now have a real battle on their hands. Well, Professor James Allen holds the oldest named chair at the University of Queensland. He is the Garrick Professor of Law. Before arriving in Australia, he spent many years teaching law at New Zealand's University of Otago. He practised law in a large Toronto law firm and at the bar in London. He's had sabbaticals at the Cornell Law School at the Dalhousie Law School in Canada as the Bertha Wilson Visiting Professor in Human Rights and at the University of San Diego School of Law. I have spoken to Professor James Allen often. He writes widely for newspapers and weeklies, including The Australian, Spectator Australia and Quadrant. But like me, he has commented regularly and recently on, quote, the Liberal Party drift ever further leftwards on energy policy and the daft decision to sign up to the disingenuous net zero, on all freedom-related issues, on running the biggest spending and biggest taxing government in our history, on ever-woker universities, the list goes on. Well, Professor James Allen joins me. James, thank you for your time. It has come to pass, has it not? It certainly has, Alan, and thank you for having me, and good luck with your new venture here. I hope, it, I hope it's a big success. Thank you. Those who saw the Liberals as Liberal in name only punished them on Saturday by not voting for them, didn't they? They did, and it's not easy to do that in Australia. You have to be prepared to preference Labour ahead of the Liberals, otherwise Liberals get your vote. And it doesn't matter where you put them on the preferential ballot. So it's a, it's a protection racket for the two main parties. It's very hard to punish your side of politics, but you, we did. You, you've written, I mean, there are a million things we could talk about, but you wrote about the Morrison claim, for example, that the pandemic saved 40,000 lives. And then you said this, this is to defend itself against the charge that Australia's pandemic response on the weld them in their homes end of the spectrum, condone despotism, police brutality and heavy handedness, preventing citizens from leaving the country, unbelievably massive government spending needed after government itself forced businesses to close. And as you say, that is the main cause for the looming inflation. And then quote, massive debts our grandchildren will be paying off. Uh, James, the public are not stupid. They objected and surely voted accordingly. I hope so. I, I, I framed it as kindly as I could for Mr. Morrison. Uh, I mean, here's the, here's the thing. I, I just was so, I, I was so disgusted by how Australia handled the pandemic. It was so heavy handed. They threw away the, the WHO rule book that had 100 years worth of data in late October 2019. And Mr. Morrison made up out of thin air this national cabinet. He never criticized Dan Andrews once. They kept feeding money to these heavy-handed premiers. And it's obvious now that the data is in that Sweden and Florida handled this properly. 
the deaths because of lockdown are going to vastly outnumber the de any deaths that lockdown saved. It was a disaster from start to finish. Mm. And I hope part of the reason they did badly was people punishing them. I really do. Yeah. Just I must ask you as a professor of law on this voting thing, it's now been confirmed that 5.5 million Australians voted early at 4,380 pre-poll centres. Now, how many of these, Professor Allen, voted illegally because it's a statutory requirement that you prove you're going to be outside the electorate where you are enrolled or you're more than eight kilometres from a polling place or you're travelling or you couldn't leave your workplace to vote or you're seriously ill or you're a patient in hospital or you've got religious beliefs that prevent you from attending a polling place or you're in prison or you're a silent elector, which means your name's on the roll but not your address. How many people met these criteria yet voted early? Well, I don't think it's being enforced. I mean, you can't have the police roughing up pregnant women during the pandemic yeah. and enforce electoral laws. They have to pick. I'm being facetious. Uh, no, I just don't think they're being enforced, really. Uh, I personally would, would, would do away with uh, pre-polling. I like people yep. having to go yep. to the polling booth on the Saturday as a sort of community and vote together. Obviously, if you're in hospital, we'll have a po postal vote, but these, these rules aren't being enforced. So more and more people are just taking the easy way out. Mm. Who knows who's in some households when you have postal voting? Absolutely. I just don't like it at all. Absolutely. You've described the Morrison government as, quote, the least conservative, liberal and national government in Australia's history. And you say, rightly, there was no enthusiastic move to Labor because both major parties scored woefully low first preference counts. I mean, if it were first past the post, both big parties would be in trouble, wouldn't they? They'd both be in trouble, and it's possible the Liberals would have won. It sort of depends how the seats played out on the first preferences. But, uh, I mean, our, our, our voting system is complicated. There's only one other country in the world that uses preferential voting. I think it's a South Pacific island. Uh, and then they, stop vote, then they stop counting at midnight. I come from Canada. You count through the night. But apparently everyone has to go home at midnight and stop counting, which seems odd to me. But, uh, yes, I agree. I, 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 everything I said there I stand by. I, I really have... I became more and more disillusioned with Mr. Morris, and he 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 seemed to have been completely driven by focus groups. The irony is, I think, that the sort of moderate lefty liberal MPs who forced him to sign up to net zero would have been better off if he hadn't, and they had to run a campaign against Labor's skyrocketing energy costs, because those are coming. We've mm -hmm. seen it in Britain. They, they Should voting be compulsory? Uh, I'm of a mixed mind on that. I don't, I used to be against it, but now I quite, I don't mind compulsory voting. Uh, if you're purely tactical about it, there's a, there's a bit of evidence that, uh, right of center parties do better with compulsory voting, especially now that the sort of working class, hardworking middle class, uh, a lot of those people don't vote in Canada and the U S and if they did, they'd vote right. Uh, but one that bothers me is the preferential voting. It's a racket for the two big parties. Yeah, absolutely. What, you, what was the Morrison government up to paying the ABC all that money before the election? Who can understand that? I, you know, people who hate you and are going to be negative, no matter what you do, you give them a big raise. What was it, $80 million yeah. or something? I, I just don't understand what they were doing on that one. I, again, you have to assume it was the... The labor light, Frydenberg, Sharma, 
Wilson crowd at, to, yeah. in the party room. I don't couldn't stand up to those people yeah. in the party room. But he just pay, pay an outfit that spends his life criticising him. You are saying that these seats that fell to the teals were always going to leave the conservative column and that the world has seen that the well-off rich vote votes solidly left because they can afford to. Just to amplify that point. Well, our voting system slows it down, but if you look at the rest of the Anglosphere, Hillary Clinton won the 100 wealthiest counties in 2016, and I think Biden got almost a full 100. Uh, Boris Johnson does not win seats in the sort of wealthy parts of London. In Canada, it's a complete write-off in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. So the winning coalition for the right uh, these inner city seats, wealthy people, there's plenty of evidence coming out of North America. They they now, and I generalize, of course, but wealthy people now tend to vote left. So you, don't, kind see, of coalition. you don't see these teal seats coming back? Not anytime soon, not really. So will the teals hang on? I I I think over time the they'll just quietly shift to being green voters. Right. I mean, the teals were nicely dressed. And when you look at what they stood for in terms of refugees and the economy, you know, the, the match was with the Green Party. And certainly, I don't know how you could call them liberal voters. Maybe voters in the sense that Trent Zimmerman's a liberal. I know. It's laughable. Just come back to that point you made before. If, just suppose hypothetically, if Morrison refused to sign up to net zero and made rising energy prices and inflation... Uh, an election issue together with mining jobs and so on. Could he have won the election? Oh, I think so. I mean, he came back and said, oh, we were forced to do it by international hedge funds. And, uh, no, this is ridiculous. He would have looked like a genius if he'd, if he'd said no, because once the war broke out and energy prices really hit the roof, yeah. he would have been able to the whole election. And also, if you look at the uh, winning game plan for the coalition since Abbott in 2010, they have stood up against the massive energy prices to varying extents, and they've won every election they've Correct. tried Correct. since 2013. I mean, and what it was and, a win and, and China, as China, as I've said many times, must be laughing. They pump out more carbon dioxide in a fortnight than we pump out in a whole year. I know. Well, well, you know, we could go back to the Stone Age tomorrow and we would make a negligible difference to That's the it. world economy. Ask you, you must be delighted to have a, an Australian wallaby make it into the Senate. You must be just <laughs> delighted. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Another climate, ch another climate change person. Never... Let me ask you just before we go, if the Matt Keane-type faction of the Liberal Party has ostensibly been decimated, as they were in WA South Australia and now on Saturday, Keane is still saying we need to embrace the Teals even more. Now, if Keane is the Liberal Party, what future does the Liberal Party have? Well, firstly, I think they got hoist with their own petard. Young Australians won't know what that means because they don't read Shakespeare, but um, I think they got hoist with their own petard because it was the relentless moving to the left, I think, that put, that put all those seats even more at jeopardy. And so the Matt Keane faction has been sort of wiped out at the national level. You've got Birmingham, uh, and there's a few of them, but they're much less than they used to be. So I, I'm hoping they put Dutton in and they, they move a little bit to the right. Who knows whether Dutton's got the, mm. the sort of... Yeah, and then... And then required, but I hope so. And then you've got Western Sydney. I mean, how did the pro-lockdown totalitarian behaviour, people in the streets with guns, 
How did that sit with the traditional Liberal voter? And they then they expected Western Sydney to vote for them. Look, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a traditional Liberal voter. I'm characterised as hard right, but you could put a piece of paper between my views and those of John F. Kennedy. So the problem is that, you know, the, all these parties are moving woke, left, you know, and we're staying the same. And so the spectrum seems to move. But I don't know what you could put your finger on when you advocate small government, a half-decent school curriculum, uh, get rid of the idiocy that men can compete in women's sports. I don't know what about that is so contentious, but it apparently yeah. qualifies you as a right person. Just well, listen, we've run out of time. It's good to talk to you, but I will make one point that you said, which was very significant, that the Liberals have become, quote, we will be Labor, but just a bit slower party. And I think they've fallen in a heap slower. as a result of that. A little bit Pro slower. <laughs> Professor James Allen, thank you so much for your time. Always good to talk. We'll talk again. Keep at it. Thank you. You too. There he is, James Enjoy Allen. Interesting insights, aren't they? Look, I'll return to the election issue shortly, but just away from all this politics for a moment, it was with great sadness that Australia learned at the weekend of the death of Caroline Jones. She was, by any reckoning, a remarkable, modest and unassuming trailblazer for women, not just in the media, I might add. She made history at the age of 31 as the first female reporter on Australia's first nightly current affairs show this day tonight. She was the first woman to anchor the ABC's Four Corners and she worked on that excellent ABC program, Australian Story, from its inception until her retirement. I knew Caroline Jones well. We communicated, not as often as we should, but as a boy from tiny Ackland, we shared a common bond since she was a girl from the tiny country New South Wales town of Murrurundi. She was a beautiful, gentle, caring, committed and unbelievably talented woman who always had time for the person on Struggle Street. She's died at the age of 84. Also last week, the Chariots of Fire composer Vangelis Papathanasiou died at the age of 79, apparently from coronavirus. We will never forget the Chariots of Fire theme in 1982, which won an Academy Award for Best Original Score. Extraordinarily, it reached the top of the Billboard chart, was an enduring hit in Britain and was used 30 years later during the London 2012 Olympics medal presentation ceremonies. Vangelis's work appears on more than a dozen soundtracks, including the Oliver Stone epic, Alexander, but his soundtracks for Blade Runner and Chariots of Fire defined a generation of film music. Well, at the other end of the scale, youth continues to triumph. There's young American runner, Arian Knighton, who was just 18. He's, I mean just 18. He's run a stack of times faster than those of Usain Bolt at the same age. The World Track and Field Championships are in Eugene, Oregon in July, the first time they've held in America. Put the name down. He was 18 in January, Arian Knighton. Closer to home, the Australian Swimming Championships and Commonwealth Games trials have been held in Adelaide, but who would know? These are brilliant young Australians. They deserve greater recognition. The Olympic champion Kyle Chalmers didn't swim the 100 freestyle, but a young man, William Yang, won in his absence in an outstanding time, but all eyes were on a Gold Coast 16-year-old Flynn Southam, who finished third. He's still at school. He has been torching junior records. He'll be at the Paris Olympics, but he's made an Australian team at 16 years of age. Then there was the remarkable Ariane Titmus, who beat the formerly unbeatable Katie Ledecky in the Tokyo Olympics. 
In the 200 women's freestyle, there's a record that many thought could never be broken because it was set in 2009 when swimmers were wearing supersuits. Titmus in Adelaide swam 153.31, which was 0.33 of a second outside that world record, and then proceeded last night to break Ledecky's 400 freestyle world record in what can only be described as a phenomenal athletic achievement. Then there's the 18-year-old Molly O'Callaghan. She won the 100 freestyle for women and is now ranked number one in the world. People have never heard of her. 52.49, the fastest time ever recorded by a teenage swimmer. Molly O'Callaghan is her name. And as well, Zach Stubblety-Cook broke the world record for the 200 breaststroke. You see, we never heard of these people and they get no publicity. And the remarkable Kyle Chalmers converting to butterfly with a limited preparation could be anything over 100 metres. Well, to continue the revolution of the teenagers, the French tennis championships have begun and all eyes will be on the recently turned 19-year-old Carlos Alcaraz. Rafael Nadal won the French title, the first of 13, at Roland Garros at 19 in his first attempt. All the talk is that this gifted teenager will follow in Rafa's past. But if Rafa's not injured, he'll be hard to deny. This is the real world of tennis, the best of five sets on the unforgiving clay courts of Paris, a fortnight of tennis to remember. So while the old sadly depart, the young thankfully continue to triumph. Well, the National Party, I'd prefer if they were called the Country Party, I might add, but they dodged the disruption to voting patterns that beset Labor and Liberal on Saturday night. There were some disturbances. Cowper on the north coast of New South Wales, centred on Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie, Kempsey and Maxville, named after Sir Charles Cowper, an early Premier of New South Wales. There was a brief flurry on Saturday night, but the two-party preferred will make it very safe for the National Party. The Resources Minister, Keith Pitt, had a minor swing against him in Hinkler, but a former Liberal National Party State Minister running as an independent attracted 13% of the vote. Keith Pitt will finish up with almost 60% of the two-party preferred, a very good result. Flynn in North Queensland, based around Gladstone, but with a retiring MP, it's always difficult. Ken O'Dowd is gone, replaced by Colin Boyce, who basically held up the Liberal national vote, notwithstanding a strong vote for Labor, but Colin Boyce will win. There was, were some nerves about the Victorian seat of Nichols because Damien Drum, the National Party member, retired. That meant the Liberals could run a candidate, so the coalition vote was split. But the National Party's Sam Birrell will win the seat of Nichols. The interesting seat is the seat of Page, where Kevin Hogan refreshingly came out in criticism of his own Morrison government over the dreadful treatment of flood victims. See, the public are not fools. Kevin Hogan had a very significant swing to him in Page of over 5%, and his primary vote and two-party preferred was well up on his vote in 2019. Letting people speak for the electorate, for themselves and the electorate, would be a nice change for a new coalition. As I've said in this election campaign, Liberal candidates were barely allowed to speak. Even ministers had to get permission from the Kremlin head office in Brisbane. Nonetheless, the National Party vote held up and dodged the other disruptions. The Coalition has lost seats. The National Party have lost none. Matt Canavan is one of the outstanding voices of common sense and of true Coalition values. And had the Coalition listened to Matt Canavan, they wouldn't be in the mess they're in today. Senator Canavan joins me from his hometown of Yapoon. Matt Canavan, thank you for your time. The national vote held up while the Liberal vote collapsed. What does McCormack, the former leader, mean today when he said the coalition would have done better 
had he been the leader of the National Party? Well, you'd have to ask him, Alan. I, I think we've actually done remarkably well uh, given the wins that were against the coalition. In fact, something like this has never happened before. This is totally historic that uh, a coalition government would lose, lose government to, to Labor, but one part of the coalition, in this case the Nationals Party, would retain all of its seats, all of its seats. And in fact, we've gone very close in Lingiari up there in the Northern Territory and the swing in Hunter to the Labor Party is a third of what it was nationally. So we have done remarkably well. And in fact, the Nationals Party has not lost a seat for 15 yeah. years. So yes. what we, we must be doing is something right. <laughs> and I see a whole lot of people out there today. Oh. I see a whole lot of people saying that the somehow the Nationals Party needs to move to the left, whatever that means. We might discuss that later. But they move to the left to help the Liberals, to help the moderate Liberals. Well, with all due respect... Perhaps it's about time some of the moderate Liberals took a leaf out of the Nationals Party book because we Dead haven't right. lost a seat right. uh, and actually represent their grassroots. Dead right. Fight for what you, you okay. believe. Okay. To the guts of it. The Greens will now have four seats in the lower house and in all likelihood increase their seats in the Senate where they already have nine. Bant was saying last night on TV, the leader of the Greens, we've got to get rid of coal and gas. How is it, Matt Canavan, in spite of everything that's been said, the public don't wake up to this economic suicide? I think because, Alan, we haven't feel, felt that pain yet here in Australia. It's going to start to happen in the next few months. Uh, electricity, the wholesale electricity prices are through the roof. Our, our wholesale electricity markets are an absolute mess. It's something that the Energy Minister of New South Wales, Matt Keane, seems completely blind to. He's distracted playing around in federal politics. But it is a complete and utter mess, our electricity market. In the next few months... Your listeners, your viewers, Absolutely. electricity bills are about to go through yep. the roof thanks to this obsession of shutting down mm. our coal-fired power stations. So I think all of that experimentation with the Greens won't actually last contact with reality of I agree. Greens policy. I agree. So let's but, just wait and but see But, Matt, Matt you've, got the, you've got you on, on your own side. I mean, Karen Andrews, who now seems to be going to be standing for the deputy leadership or whatever of the Liberal Party, she wants to run, but she says that the climate change issues should be dealt with and dealt with in a sensible manner. Is there something else these people can talk about? Well, Alan, um, I think it's uh, a fool's errand to think we'll win back seats that we've lost to, say, the, the Teals by agreeing with them. I mean, if you agree with your opponents, the public will probably just stick with the opponents, stick with the real deal. We actually have to, at some point, confront and argue for our own set of values and principles, which when I joined the Liberal and Nationals parties, Alan, when I joined the LNP, our principles and values stood for a low gov small government, uh, lower taxes, lower regulation, uh, the development of our nation, uh, including the frontiers, uh, the, the support for families, the investing in our defence and national security. So maybe we just focus on those things and we might have a chance of having, making this a contest and winning seats. The reality is, Alan, if we want a bigger coalition party room, we've got to get behind a smaller government. Absolutely. Look, thank God for this bloke. I know the viewers out there are clapping. You've said for months that net zero is as dead as disco. Boris Johnson's walking away from his climate commitments. The German Chancellor, in coalition with the Greens, has said they need to invest in coal and gas infrastructure. Italy is reopening coal plants. How far off the pace are we? That's right, Alan. Uh, uh, I wish we would just wake up uh, to this. We've had a, a, a really an opportunity at a last-minute reprieve because after the Glasgow conference, I was concerned we would just have to cop the harsh reality of Greens policies and we perhaps wouldn't wake up to things until we went through the school of hard knocks. 
But having seen directly what net zero policies does to a country, as we can see in Europe and the Sri Lanka as well, if you want another example, uh, if we can see that right now, uh, surely we have an opportunity here to say, look, maybe we should just pause. I mean, how absurd have things got, Alan, where apparently the mainstream policy position in this country is that we should fundamentally transform the way we grow food, the way we make things, the way we provide energy with, uh, with technologies that do not yet exist. That's the mainstream position. The radical position is little old me saying, hmm, maybe we should just pause <laughs> before uh, we, we throw away hundreds of years of knowledge of how, how to grow something. Well, let's uh, come to that point. Uh, decades of knowledge of how to manufacture something. Maybe we should just conserve <laughs> what we know in a conservative party and, and tread cautiously well, on this well, radical part. Let me come back to that point, that very, very critical point that you've raised about growing food and the importance of fertiliser in the growing of food and the importance of fossil fuels in the provision of fertiliser. Amplify those two points for our viewers. It's a great point, Alan. Uh, look, I, I feel sometimes we're, I mean, uh, through the looking glass here. On election night, I was on the Channel 9 coverage and, yes, we talked about climate change a lot, but when we broke for the news, there was actually a news item on the 6 o'clock, Channel 9 News, that there were global food shortages emerging. Uh, we are returning to an era where there may not be enough food to feed people. Keep in mind that for really the last 40 or 50 years, famines have been eradicated from the, the world, except for times of political disarray. Uh, but we have the technologies, thanks to the Green Revolution, thanks to the development of modern fertilisers, the real Green green Revolution I'm talking about here, Alan, not the fake one no. uh, that we hear so much about, the real Green, green Revolution, we developed fertilisers largely produced from natural gas, from fossil fuels, and they have helped wheat yields grow by 60% in the last few decades and help feed ourselves. Now, if you turn off the fossil fuels tap, if you take away uh, the use of gas, sometimes coal, to create these fertilisers, uh, you will drop wheat yields back down to those uh, pre-industrial levels. See, and with 8 billion people walking around the planet right now, absolutely. a lot of people will go hungry. See, Matt, the simple point is it not, and you've made this point and I've made the point, half the food we eat is only grown thanks to fertilisers that are made from fossil fuels. I mean, natural gas, you just said, is the main feedstock. It's used to convert carbon dioxide, hydrogen and nitrogen into a fertiliser known as urea. So when Bant talks about getting rid of coal and gas and oil, does he know anything about their use in growing food? No, I don't think he does. I don't think he does. And unfortunately, our schools don't teach this stuff to our children anymore. They learn a lot about fossil fuels, but they learn all the downsides of fossil fuels, not the upsides that have helped the world um, climb out of what was before the Industrial Revolution, a, a uh, nasty, brutish and short existence for human beings. Uh, it is thanks to fossil fuels that we have and enjoy the modern lives we do. And if we take that away, if we take that away, uh, bad things are going to happen. Uh, now, we have, I don't think anybody is starving around the world thanks to climate change at this stage. But they certainly are starving thanks to the implementation of climate change policies. Absolutely. And that's where now we need to turn around here and uh, return the production of energy and, and food to wealthy, uh, free and open nations, not outsource them to dictatorial regimes so that Matt, will only seek to do us harm. So, Matt, to put it simply, is it valid to say thanks to fossil fuels, hunger has effectively disappeared... So if the Teals and the Greens and Labor are going to rabbit on about climate change and demonising fossil fuels, do they know anything about the fact that fossil fuels have a profound impact on the growing of food? I don't, as I say, Alan, I don't think they do. And, and 
and maybe they don't care because keep in mind where the, the teal representatives with the Greens are, they're our wealthiest, the wealthiest parts of our country. And so uh, in those areas, we'll still have food. It'll just be a bit more expensive. Uh, but for the vast bulk of the rest of us, eating a Scotch fillet will become a luxury item. It'll become back to Tiny Tim days where Christmas is the time where you're able to uh, have something uh, uh, of decent protein. The rest of the time, you'll be, you won't, we just won't be able to afford these. Well, just take one example. Uh, and so when you're, when you're well healed... Yeah. Just take one example. I mean, I've talked recently on the program about Sri Lanka and the crisis there. They're almost bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And you've written about this too. Uh, one of those Rajapaksas, there's a lot of them run the joint there, but doesn't President Rajapaksa ban the importation of chemical fertilisers? He wanted farming to be 100% organic. So this is the fertiliser equivalent of net zero. But within six months, rice production fell by 20%. Shops were rationing it. By November last year, the government had to back down and allow chemical fertiliser use to resume. But the damage had been done. And the decline in the production that's of cash right, crops that's, like that's rubber right. and tea led to this financial crisis. Now Sri Lanka are virtually bankrupt. I mean, are we heading in that direction? Well, we're a long way from Sri Lanka, but it is a cautionary tale. And it's not virtually bankrupt. It is bank bankrupt. They, yeah. uh, the Sri Lankan Treasury before this started, had $7.5 billion US dollars in the bank. This was put out there by the new Prime Minister, who's putting the facts on the table. They've had $7.5 billion in their treasury. Today, they have $1 billion, $1 million, sorry, $1 million US dollars. They've gone from $7.5 billion to $1 million. They cannot afford to import fuel. Uh, the country's in complete crisis. Amazing. Now, we're a long way from that. And paradoxically, yeah. Alan, but to some extent, these green policies benefit Australia because we're a food and energy exporter. So prices for coal and food are up at the moment. That's great for miners and farmers. The problem and the front lines for our country will be for poorer people, people who cannot afford a scotch fillet every Absolutely. night, uh, people Absolutely. who have to watch their pennies every week Absolutely. or they'll start getting into the debt Absolutely. in the pounds. Right. They're the people that will be hurt by these policies mm. and they're the people being left behind Absolutely. by the Teals and others. Now, I think the challenge for us and the Liberal National Party is to not forget those people. This party, know. this coalition was built on, on the backs of the forgotten people. Absolutely. And we are no longer in government because we forgot the forgotten Good people. You. Good on uh, you. We need to rediscover them, yep. get out to the quiet Australians, Matt, back their aspirations, back their dreams, and, uh, and not sign up to these crazy policies we're, and make their we're, life we're, tough. we're out of time. It's always good to talk to you, but I will just share with our viewers one comment that this man made, and he said, in relation to those fertilisers, if the entire world was headed down this primrose path, we will all be in the school of hard knocks together. And he said, the longer we wait to wake from our net zero dream, the greater the nightmare will be. Matt Canavan, you do outstanding work. Thank you for talking to us. We'll talk often here. This is a battle that has to be won. Grateful for your time tonight, Matt. Thanks, Alan. Here he is, Senator Matt Canavan. Look, back to this political issue. I asked in my closing comment on Thursday night, can Labor win eight seats to get to 76? Well, they're currently on 72. There are still undecided seats. Labor are well ahead in Richmond, well ahead in McNamara, just ahead in the Tasmanian seat of Lyons, just ahead in the Liberal-held seat of Deakin, and significantly and almost shamefully ahead in the John Howard, John Alexander seat of Benelong. You see, as I've said many times, the Liberal Party head office acted like the Kremlin during the election, and candidates by and large weren't allowed to speak to the media. How the hell do they develop a profile? The Benelong Liberal Simon Kennedy is a good candidate. He may well be another thrown under the Morrison bus. Nonetheless, that makes five seats that Labor may win, which would enable them to govern in their own right. And the coalition would go from 52 to 58, which means the loss of 18 seats, a wipeout. 
The only seat that the Liberals could win is Gilmore, where Andrew Constance has today crept narrowly to the lead in front by 306 votes. Some significant points must be made. Some are unpalatable. No one wants to be dancing on anyone's political grave. But if you could forgive the vulgar expression, Scott Morrison believed his own bullshit. It's not in the last week that he couldn't win. This election was lost months and months ago. I can well remember the drought of 2018 and the Turnbull government with Morrison as treasurer offered nothing to farmers, but they had $444 million for the Great Barrier Reef Foundation who never asked for a cent. Then we had the extraordinary business about lockdowns and businesses being put out of business, workers out of work, but money being thrown around like confetti. Casuals on a couple of days work a week worth $200, suddenly we're getting $750. Southwest Sydney, where mysteriously the coalition thought they could win seats, would make statements about the government that are unprintable because of the way they were made to live during lockdown. Victoria used to be the jewel in the Liberal crown. They went into the election holding 12 seats out of 38 and Labor leader Daniel Andrews on the nose. But the Liberal Party may end up holding only eight seats, half of which are on margins of less than 5%, and Josh Frydenberg, the prince of Victorian Liberals, is gone. The bruising reality is that in trying to find its way back into office, there is little that anyone can point to in the past nine years that could be described as a legacy. This country is urgently in need of reform when it comes to debt, taxation, freedom of speech, education, industrial relations. The outgoing government was silent on the lot. The unpalatable truth, and there are those words again, is that Scott Morrison delivered victory to Labor. Not only have the Liberals lost power, in doing so they've surrendered traditional Liberal values to the extent that the base of the party has been lost. As one commentator wrote at the weekend of Morrison, he was a bulldozer all right, he bulldozed his party into electoral oblivion. The Liberal leader went, became so poisonous to traditional Liberal voters that he dared not show his face in traditional Liberal heartland. He single-handedly turned Blue Ribbon Liberal seats teal. If Cathy McGowan and Zali Stegall were the mothers of the teal movement, Morrison was its father. The teal candidates couldn't have done it without him. There'll be a savage reckoning in the Liberal Party, unquote. Well, then there's the question of judgment. In politics, as in sport and business, if your judgment's crook, you're gone. He attacked Christine Holgate over some watches. Women reeled at the language that was used. Then the cost of living and the gap between wages and inflation. When Albanese said the minimum wage would have to increase, Morrison attacked him and then backtracked when presumably some focus group warned that he was on the wrong tram. I mentioned weeks ago that one word would dominate the campaign. That word was care, aged care, child care, care for the disabled. Albanese is no political saint, and like the bloke pushing the barrow up a hill, Albanese has the job in front of him, but he spoke to those in need of care. Morrison shouted in return. Even on Saturday night, in his speech conceding defeat, Morrison was still shouting. He opened by thanking the Defence Forces, and that was fine. He said they'd saved Australia. But so too had our nurses and doctors and our SES men and women in the floods and the fires. Why were they forgotten? These things matter. When you lose your traditional Liberals and the pre-selections in New South Wales were held up to favour Morrison's mates, in the end there were 11th hour selections and then the candidates virtually abandoned. When you lose your traditional Liberals, when you abandon traditional Liberal values and when your record of competence think debt is being questioned, 
The Liberals now have to endure the end result. The party pitchforked into oblivion. As one commentator said, in the end, Morrison had nothing to offer. The electorate reciprocated by offering him nothing in return. Scott Morrison, who found it impossible to articulate what the Liberal Party stood for, now today sees the Liberal Party standing on the brink of demolition. It can't be rebuilt unless there's a massive grassroots movement to restore the Liberal Party to true liberalism, which believes in small government and practices it, believes in lower taxes and practices it, believes the destructive scourge of debt and does something about it, believes that our children are our future and they deserve a first-class education, not an essay on political indoctrination. Dutton may be just the man to grab all this by the scruff of the neck and to paraphrase Donald Trump, drain the Liberal swamp. He'll need a thick hide to do it, but it may be just the man. Well, before we go, one casualty from Saturday was the former New South Wales Premier, Christina Keneally. The Scotland Island local was parachuted into the seat of Fowler, a Labor stronghold. Not only that, Keneally sidelined the 30-year-old Tu Lee, who was initially pre-selected as Labor's candidate. Lee was a migration lawyer, community worker and a Labor Party member. Also the daughter of Vietnamese immigrants, your quintessential success story, all crushed by Christina Keneally's transparent ambition and someone who, I'm sorry, has had their time in public life. How many times can the Labor Party offer her up as a candidate? Well, Dai Lee appeared on my show two weeks ago. At the time, I mentioned the media seemed hypnotised by the teal independence. I said that Dai Lee was a real independent, the Deputy Mayor of Fairfield and worthy of support by the voters in Fowler. Well, so it proved to be. Dai Lee is articulate, a real local, and understands the struggles being faced by people in that area. Better yet, she won, proving that grassroots campaigns with real locals can buck the trend and send a sign to a major party which has millions of dollars in resources. Remember, the seat was previously held by Labor by a margin of 14%. I love Di Lee's comment, and I quote, I'm so grassroots, I ran on the smell of an oily rag. We had to draw down the mortgage on our home. People gave me $25 here, a few hundred dollars there, and that helped, but the majority was our money. Unquote, fantastic stuff. One other person who was an unexpected casualty on Saturday, but there's still hope that she'll hang in, is One Nation's Pauline Hanson. She's in the fight of her political life, trying to snatch the sixth Queensland Senate spot. I've known Pauline for many, many years, and I've always stood by her. She's a remarkable Australian and a fighter for Australians. It's that simple. Name one other politician who is as honest with the Australian public as Pauline Hanson is. There's none. And that's why she's a rock star out there and has enjoyed political success. The problem she's now facing is that Clive Palmer, after spending an eye-watering $100 million and not winning a single seat, has eaten into One Nation's vote. We need people like her to remain in the Senate to knock off the green left lunacy we're about to witness. So if your spending of $100 million means that Pauline Hanson misses out on a Senate place in Queensland you can count me out. I don't see how Australia would be better off by that result. Another good Queenslander who missed out on Saturday is Amanda Stoker, a true conservative and a splendid thinker, but factions prevailed. My point, we're not about promoting good people, we're about protecting the factions. If that doesn't end, there's more pain ahead for the coalition. 
That's it from me tonight. I'll look at other aspects of Saturday, which will fascinate you tomorrow night. I'll see you then on ADH.TV. That's it from me tonight. Good night.